All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by Nick Glinsman. Nick, welcome to the show. Hello there. How are you? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Uh, better and better day by day. So that's good. That's People that know me know the story, so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> We're a couple of optimists. We got sunny outlooks on, exactly, uh, on life here. Exactly right. So I've, I've been really looking forward to this discussion. I think I, I kind of want to start out by asking you about some of the macro conditions here based out of the U.S., but I really want to make sure that we make this a global conversation. Before we were getting on here, we were starting to discuss some of the interesting interplay between what's going on in the U.S. versus China, but also the gilt market over in the U.K., the yen is making a move, and all of these things have implications together. So I'm going to start with questions in the U.S., but then I want to make sure we broaden out and make it a more global conversation. Sounds so, like fun. I'm 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 looking at one of your your most recent notes where you pull out some some data about the employment market. Now we know that this is a key uh, part of what the Fed looks at. It's explicitly part of their dual mandate. And recently, I think you called out some some recent shifts and potential weakening in the unemployment data. So if you want to just take us through last week's job report and how you're interpreting that information. Okay, so at the high level, uh, the initial figures: three point six percent unemployment. Wage, wage growth ticking up again. Um, this is not what the Fed wants, and we'll go into that subsequently. Um, however, you know we're, we're always looking for any signs that shows a weakening in the economic outlook. You know, our, our business in macro is misery, and to always look for the negative. That's what we spend our lives doing. Okay, <laughs> so um, the one thing I did notice was there was a downtick in temporary staff hiring mm. and that's the first thing to go if the economy is beginning to teeter okay that's that's something we have to watch and we uh, you know i certainly recommend viewers watch for that uh that particularly if that continues that downdrift in temporary hiring that's a sign that maybe the economy is beginning to teeter and certainly the bond market yield curve move is telling you I think it's telling you two things, but one of the two things it's telling you is maybe we're getting closer to that time where a recession starts and a recession is not going to be good for risk assets. But the, you know, the overall view that I have on, on the labor market and just generally what the Fed's trying to do, we obviously the Fed's objective is to bring inflation down to its 2% target. And I would poo-poo any discussion of changing the target until they achieve this. You can't change a target. You can't move the goalposts during the match. Keep the target, achieve the target, then you can discuss. Okay. Now, I'm of the opinion that they're not doing a great job. And the reason why they're not doing a great job, they need labor to weaken. Um, if you look at core measures of inflation, the one I really look at, which is something the Fed's focused on, is, and if I keep referring, I'm just making sure I got my facts right. <laughs> is the services inflation X energy rock solid six and a half percent. Okay. We, we know that Jay Powell looks at that. Um, now, how do you bring that down? Because a lot of that is, you know, service sector wage growth. You need labor unemployment level to go up. You probably need it to go up by a full percent, or, you know, something like four and a half percent at a minimum. How's that going to happen without the Fed keeping things tight, tighter for longer, perhaps doing another two rate hikes? Um, now, right at this moment, I think they do one. 
sit back because I think the the equity market just doesn't feel a, feels a bit risky at the moment, and I would attach that to the move on the dollar yen, which we can talk about a little bit later. Uh, the yen being having been the best currency to fund any risk positions in global macro or globally anyway. So we need the Fed, and Jay Powell has effectively admitted this. He's okay if there's a recession because he needs unemployment higher because unemployment will filter through it in impact to all these levels of inflation that they're watching, particularly service, service inflation, ex-energy, energies like this. I mean, you know, this week, we're on Monday, Wednesday is the CPI. We could get a big drop in, in headline CPI, uh, but coal won't drop that much, okay? And then the July data in August, go and have a look at the base effects. They all drop out. So we're going to see up, it's going to be very hard not to have an uptick in headline rate, uptick in coal. So it's a problem for them. Now, the trouble with unemployment is the U.S. economy is a hyper-financialized economy. It's not a case of is the tail wagging the dog or the dog wagging the tail, right? The stock, the higher the stock market goes, looser financial conditions there are. But also, it seems to have a positive correlation with various aspects of the economy and economic growth. Let's give you the most obvious aspect. So back in fourth quarter of last year, stock, stock market had a pretty bad time. Okay, so all the the big techs, the ones that have been driving this rally in 2023, announced layoffs, reasonably substantial layoffs. Those occurred in January, and you've not heard anything since because the market's been going up. Okay, so there's your an example of a financialized economy, and I think it permeates through all sorts of the economy. Um, we are split with haves and haves not have nots, but there does seem to be a very strong correlation, almost leads the way. Higher the stock market, better the economy performs. And that's all, all down to financial conditions. The Fed can't engineer higher unemployment and a slowdown without tighter financial conditions. So I without any sudden left something coming out of the left field. Uh, to knock the stock market, that the Fed has to get the stock market down because it has to tighten financial conditions. Now, with beginning this this month is interesting. So, obviously, Q, QT started at the end of last year. Uh, sorry, at end of twenty twenty one and picked up and has just been chugging along. But then we had the SVB and the regional bank crisis. They added money, and the Treasury general account was adding a lot of money into the system. They wanted stocks to remain high. Now we're through that, and you're beginning to see the you know the TGA Treasury general account had to be rebuilt. That's been done by Treasury issuance, cash bills, cash management bills. There you go. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so we're beginning to see that that pulled liquidity out, but then QT has started to impose itself, and you know, I think we're now we, we're lower by twenty and a half percent from the peak of uh, Treasury securities on the Fed balance sheet post pandemic during the pandemic. We're now 
20.5% has dropped out. The trouble here, and you know, those of us who have policy connection, policymaker connections have expressed this, the trouble with what the Fed's done as QT has accentuated the yield curve inversion because they've been letting short-dated stuff roll off. They're not selling longer stuff into the market, hence accentuated the, accentuating the yield curve inversion. Um, they need to change that. We need to see the longer end come through. Now, my, my thought process is if they don't get this right and we see unemployment stick at 35 to 3.7%, stock market carry, carries on going up, you're going to have a, a bond market crash. And I suspect that you'll see, you know, twos at 6%. They broke 5% on Friday. They're back below tens. I think you could see another 70 basis points on that. That would be a, quite a big upshift across the curve. That will cause mm. some pain. Equities would definitely have a problem there. And I think the, econ- the economy, um, it would be quite difficult. So... We think by, as a consequence of rates and potentially rates going higher, but even here, as a consequence of rates, diminishing liquidity, because that should start to kick in, collapsing money supply, and that's a global phenomenon, we're going to see a credit drought. So I think eventually we will start to see the economy crack, but it definitely needs the equity market to fall down and fall reasonably hard um, because those conditions have got to tighten. Nick, I, I, you just covered an enormous amount of ground there, and I, I want to make sure that we we zoom in a little bit and just bookend the, the conversation about liquidity and yields in the U.S. before we start to move into the euro area and China. So for, for those who weren't following along on video, the, the chart that I was just showing to Nick here is the withdrawal of liquidity and the impact that's had on bond yield. So in the last two weeks, we've had $170 billion worth of liquidity that was drained for the system. Nick, to your point, that's why yields, especially on the short end of the curve, have been rising up, right? This is These are bonds Mashed. that are being left. Right. And right. not just in the US, by the way. Just have, yeah. you know, Germany, the European bond market, they all got smashed. Yeah. So, but you know what? What I want to get a sense of for you is how successful do you think this quantity? Because if if core inflation, which is what the Fed is looking at, if that is going to be stickier than they otherwise uh, than than we think it is going to be, and they're going to continue to do QT, how successful can they really be? In in the past, you know, I, I was a great chart we were showing before where we highlighted there have been two periods of QT. One which is closed, and now the other QT, but by the end of this month, will have drained as, as the same amount of liquidity as we did in the entire QT1. So the question is, how much longer can that go on? Because that's what's driving this sell-off in bonds and this uh, continued inversion of the yield curve, which has got to, that's got to be scaring everyone. The inversion gives you a clue as to what's actually been happening. It, the, I didn't think the Fed mm. had done a good job on QT because they, a lot mm. of the QT and the Treasury balance there's just been a roll-off of maturing debt. That affects the right. short end because it's cash, right? I, uh, my view and others that I, you know, whose opinions I respect greatly, the Fed has got to actually start to actively sell some of its holdings in the longer end because this inversion of the curve, you can tell how, how confused the marketplace is. 
Um, no, I wouldn't necessarily say the bond market, but it's gone further than we, you know, people who've got experience, we would have anticipated. Um, and I think the, the inversion is part the, the rapid raising of the Fed funds rate, but also part this QT, what they've been letting go. They've got to, to level out the, flatten the curve, what I call bearish de-inversion. People are calling it now bearish steepening. We can't steepen if we're still inverted. You've got to sell more. They've got to sell more of the, the long, they've got to let more of the long end go. You've got to have a, a greater discount in price, a higher yield offer at the long end for that curve to start to flatten and, and then ultimately go steep. The actual bearish steepening, that minute that we get close to flat and start steepening into positive, you're in recession, undeniably. So, but the, what they've done is they've created a need to discount the short end further because they're just getting rid of the short paper. So the hence, that's accentuated the inversion. The inversion is standard ahead of a recession, but this has gone way more. And the irony is Powell and the Fed always refer to three-month T-bills versus 10-year. Well, what are they letting? You know, they're letting the very... If you let stuff roll off, you're discounting at the very short end. So that gets cheaper and hits the curve, inverts further. Have we got the... Does that come through as an inversion or should I be doing? No, that's right, isn't it? Um, yeah. So I just don't think they've been handling it right. And I think one of the problems, I have a view on, this This is somewhat cynical view on a lot of the central banks. Uh, their models didn't work. They were unable to take into account the changed circumstances of what was a Minsky moment, the pandemic. And they haven't followed, so it's been a series of mistakes and they haven't followed this through. And they keep, and the potential for further mistakes continues. So, you know, if, back to the earlier part of our discussion, if the Fed do one and done, but they stay higher for longer, I don't think equities care. I think they still rank. Well, that, that's all loosening the financial system. They have to tighten financial conditions to get this inflation down. So the risk is if they if they pause like that and it's a pause, financial conditions will loosen. Services, core services, inflation, X energy will remain where they are, and you'll start to see other inflation measures at the core level, maybe even at the headline level. Given you know what could potentially happen to uh, crude oil, start to move up. Then Jay Powell ends up being cornered into a replication of Arthur Burns, which he's wanted to avoid. He wants yeah. to be Volcker, not Arthur Burns. And then they'll have to start raising rates again. Hey, everyone. We'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. You've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the ones that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, roll-ups, count abstraction, MEV, app change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So 
Because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. Maybe we can close on this question here and then I want to move over to your thoughts on the UK and everything that's happening over there. But it, you know, that point about the inversion of the yield curve is such a good one. And I think when you combine that idea of an inverted yield curve with this connection and increasing financialization of the US economy, it just seems from my standpoint, like the Fed is setting itself up for a very tough position because, you know, we know. So, you know, what caused the stress in, ter- in terms of the banking system in March of this year? It was an asset liability mismatch, right? And these banks weren't prepared. Bad, bad, risk, management. bad, bad risk, risk management. management. Bad risk management. People were behaving like a hedge fund and they, they don't know how to do it. Right. And, you know, and but, but, you know, my, my point is that I feel like the banks weren't the only ones that were doing that, right? Okay. And there, there are well, lots of... Right. There are lots well, of right. institutional any any asset class which is funded with a variable interest rate, they've all got to be in trouble here. There is a fixed rate of return for the asset, shadow but the bank. value of shadow the shadow, shadow banking system. So it oh. seems like what they're trying to do is they've got this one tool, right, which is raising the short the short end of the curve. They're inverting the interest rate, uh, the yield curve. This is supposed to slow down growth, but invariably they're gonna end up blowing something up. And when they blow oh, yeah. something up, yeah. they're going to have to do what they did with SVB, which is inject liquidity back into the system and undo all the good it work. It depends done. what they break. Mm. It, it does depend what they break. Okay, um, but I, I don't disagree with you. You know, uh, the Fed shouldn't stop until they've broken something, but then it depends what they break. Okay, I mean, look, you know, I heard was it a massive P and L markdown by Bank of America. On their trade, on their assets, they were holding a huge portfolio of long, long paper, almost a hundred billion dollars worth. I think you're right. I think it was a hundred billion dollars. So, you know, the, the the regional banks aren't the only ones. But the the other point, you know, the thing that killed the regional banks, and it's been hurting the bigger banks, but they have a much greater pool of assets and diversification, was this ability to instantaneously send your deposits to another bank. Right on your on your cell phone. Now, one thing. So let's put let's let's look at some of the mistakes the Fed's done. Team transitory. That was a mistake. They should have been raising rates slowly a year earlier. Who led team t- transitory? Elle Brainard. She was the, the the leading dove. Okay, so error number one. A year too late on the tightening cycle. Let's look at what the. The, the regional banks suffer. Re, the banks in general are not paying interest on deposits, which we've all been used to previously. Okay, so on that basis, the regional banks weren't paying it. What are you going to do? You could put money with Apple four and a half percent. You could put money in the money market funds, which is now five percent plus, and have liquidity when you need it. So what are you going to do? You're going to take your deposits out and put them into. The deposit-paying short-end funds. Well, that is going to kill some of these regional banks. And as you rightly said, that the asset liability mismatch suddenly became clear because they couldn't sell the assets to cover the outflow of deposits because the assets were at par. <laughs> Portfolio of long-end treasuries was down 14 15%. Bang. Liquidity. So that was... A, now, what should the Fed have done? 
on a regulatory point of view, they should have told the banks, don't think we're just doing a couple. We're going aggressively after inflation. Pay interest on the deposits. That's a regulatory issue. Who is responsible for regulatory matters at the Fed? Lael Brainard. (laughs) She's just been promoted upwards to the White House, right? And I always felt there was a reason she wanted, desperately wanted to get to the Economic Council of the White House and become chair, because that's the ultimate top economic position. If Yellen writes uh, speeches, they have to go through Brainard before Yellen can come up with those speeches. Ah. So she's got... uh, See, she was promoted upwards. Of course she wanted out of the Fed, because it's only going to get more difficult right now. Okay? Um, I think there's a couple of aspects which have been erroneous from the Fed. One is a year too late in studying raise rates and considering inflation transitory when they didn't clearly, their models didn't take into account supply side constraints. Bang. And then there was the regulatory side, which would have, you know, if you were earning 2% at SVB, would you be bothered to go to 4% somewhere else because you had immediate access to your money? No. So say 2% or 2 up, whatever the level was, the bank should have been told, put interest on deposits because we're going, we're going for it. We're going to kill this inflation, whatever it takes. There you go. And then the other aspect that I find extraordinary about the Fed, in the good old days of Greenspan, he would be more than willing to discuss fiscal. I could, you know, he would actually turn around in press conferences and say, I can get a bit easier, but fiscal has to come down. Fiscal spend has to come down. Well, that's relevant now because I think another aspect of the oil on the fire of inflation is this huge, huge fiscal spend by the Biden. Started with, with Trump, but Biden has taken it to a whole different level. Nick, why isn't this in more popular discourse? You know, you, you hear it sometimes. It actually gets asked of Powell and some of his pressers. And, you know, why are you not going to, to speak to your, your colleagues over on the fiscal side? Uh-huh. The, the answer is very clear. You know, this is how he communicates. I will not be doing that. So, so why is that? Because You're from my right. perspective. Powell and the Fed should be held to account on why they're not discussing fiscal with Yellen. And by the way, Yellen was his predecessor. Okay, now I've got my I've got my own views on. People forget about Janet Yellen. She was a labor she's a labor economist. So everything's about getting people to work. She's not a fiscal economist. She's not a monetarist. She's not a she's not a pure Keynesian, which is you know use fiscal as a balancing lever, up and down, positive and negative, depending on how the economy and the revenue is coming in. The current fiscal spend is. You know, you might as well have, um, well, I mean, it, 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 let's put it this way. This current fiscal spend and what they're planning to do further is just frightening. And let me add this, running into what is a big kahuna of an election next year. Do you think the Biden administration is going to let the economy fall into uh, recession? Whatever the Fed do, they're going to cut, try and counter with fiscal. I'm convinced of that so i i find it so you know 
without getting emotional. I just find it's it's distressing. (laughs) Yeah, it's distressing. It's extremely distressing. And yeah, yeah, I mean, how long can you really expect to sustain? You know, it's two. The CBO projected two trillion dollars a year for the next the next ten. It's going to take us up to fifty trillion in debt. I mean, actually, you need inflation. On that basis, you need inflation. Yeah, I think it's actually the most compelling. You know, people when people talk about inflation versus deflation, they often yeah debt and uh, or, or sorry, talk about demographics and technology debt. I mean, if the idea is to spend X amount of dollars per year, right, at some, at some, and now the thing that makes this very difficult to pin down is when this is ultimately going to happen. Nick, we could go find, maybe not on podcast form, but, you know, there are written interviews in the late 80s about uh, when we started to run a deficit, people sort of predicting, you know, some sort of imminent uh, move against the dollar. That's the problem, right? And also, Um, the other thing that's, the other thing that is worth thinking about is so AI has been very much topic du jour, topic yep. of the day, uh, and it's going to be disinflationary and it's going to be great for the economy. Okay, first of all, if you go back in history, and there's a great paper from the Bank of England, we've been in 400 years of effectively deflationary forces. Okay, it's been 400 years of it. Secondly, um, AI could be a bit bad in terms of impact on on labor but was the internet that bad was you know combustion internal combustion engine that bad steam engines that bad? You, you see where i'm going i do so I think yeah that, yeah the hype on a on a macroeconomic basis of ai so it's it's it i mean there's some fascinating things i i ai is completely relevant and we're doing a bit of work on it and we're looking at you know, uh, industry 4.0, that's, we've got a huge belief in that. And that some of the stuff that we will need in the future, we won't need to import it from China as, a, you know, input products, be it, you know, they've just put a ban on gallium and, and one other rare earth uh, metal that's used for semiconductor chips. Well, you know, industry 4.0 may find other ways of compensating that with, with new materials that we don't know about right? as of today, True. maybe in six months to a year. Yeah. Um, a de- by the way, deglobalization is fundamentally inflationary, whatever anybody says. And the other thing I would like to just put in one last thing on inflation, it's inelastic on the way down. It's very elastic on the way up, but it's inelastic on the way down. Can you describe what you mean by that? Companies are happy to raise raise prices. You know, the minute they get a the chance, yeah. they'll raise a the price. Do they have the same feeling and motivation on the way down? No, not so much. <laughs> Once you, you know, have that actually... price raise, it ain't coming back down again. Yeah, very well That's said, Nick. Very well said. Outside. Yeah, and also that you know the other thing which um, uh, Harold's daughter Pippa meant, did a, a book on is shrinkflation. That's the other thing. You've been buying your bars of chocolate. This doesn't look like it's the same size as I used to get. Bang, shrinkflation. So you're paying the same price for less of the product. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of stats out here. I want to anecdotally agree with some of them. Obviously, you should take any anecdote with a bit of uh, you know grain of salt. But you know, you mentioned temp workers dying off. I actually for the July Fourth weekend, I was in Martha's Vineyard. I used to be a, a service worker myself there. I worked there for three summers and. You know, I talked to the cabbies and the waiters and waitresses, dead summer. They're all disappointed. Everyone's scratching their heads. Well, why aren't, you know, really? why? Yeah, yeah. That was the the word. There was a guy, 
Uh, there was a cab driver. There are, there are three uh, cab services on the island. We talked to one of them. He said he's been coming out there nine years. It's the worst year in, in nine years. Um, You're and kidding the, me. Yeah. No. I mean, that's a and very it, nice place to go for the summer. Yeah, it is. Do you think they'll pay for that advert? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe they might need it. Um, but yeah. the 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 other one is on the shrinkflationist. I actually noticed it this weekend. If you, uh, I, I wear contacts. I'm blind as a bat. And if you, uh, the the brand that I use is uh, Opti Optifresh, I believe. And they, I realized recently they've uh, they've reduced the size of the container. Uh, you know, about twenty percent. So you can, if, if you're, no, maybe, maybe there, maybe there are some people out there with contacts that also buy from the same brand as me, but if you buy it at Costco, it's still the same size, but any CVS sort of location, it's a smaller size now. So, wow. Uh, well, that's why yeah. I, I stick with glasses because I've always felt they make me look a little bit, little bit more credible than yeah. otherwise. <laughs> the glasses plus the British accent, an unbeatable combo. <laughs> you're, you're really somebody like, actually, the, other, the other week, somebody said, I'm beginning to, you know, the minute my hair, what's left of it goes white. Hmm. I'd, I'd make a good pass of um, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Grow the beard out. You could do Dumbledore as well. Yeah. The world is your oyster, I think. Thank you. Know, you. <laughs> I wish I could do the magic. There you go. Then we can solve everybody's problems. <laughs> All right. I, I actually, speaking of uh, Englishness here, I actually want to, we've been talking about the UK and I've got a couple of char- uh, charts to to walk okay. you in. You're going to put me through. right into the guilt market. The, yes, the, exactly. The belly and, of the uh, beast. The belly, yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm glad to have you. I've been wanting to talk about it for a while, and I just feel it's it's a little bit outside of my lane of expertise here. But I've got a couple of uh, here. What do I want to start with here? So this is this is we're looking at inflation and core inflation. So these numbers, if you're comparing them to what's going on in the U.S., obviously quite a bit, quite a bit it's higher. The highest in G7. It's the highest. Yeah, that's what we need to say. Right. Um, uh, we actually the got a BBC. They're in trouble at the moment. Um, they they are we've and we've got to just just to continue to walk you through here because there are so many similarities in between everything the, the problems that we we're talking about over in the U.S. and the U.K. So the U.K. debt has now surpassed the size of the overall economy. Debt to GDP in the U.S. is is worse than it is in the U.K. But now that's that number is starting to creep up. If you look at what that's done to uh, interest rates and the the market for interest rates, so uh, basically the the expectations for interest rates is to get to over six and a half percent. In the UK now, and that's going out through 2024. So it, it's uh, and finally the last chart that I've got for you here is we're looking at uh, the performance of various uh, that the gilt market, and we're looking at the 10 year, uh, the two year, the five year, the 20 year, and the 30 year. And as you can see, that top orange line. So if you're following along, not via video, you can see that it's basically it's it's going straight up here, and the the two year, so the shorter end of the curve, is surpassing the the longer. Um, you know, the the further out. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's that yeah, curve inversion. And actually the best way to describe the UK is a higher, higher beta version of the US. Hmm. It's a good way of describing it. That's the way I've always described the UK. The other mm. problem you have talking about the U- the UK with a Brit, as I am, is we're always overly bearish, regardless of what goes on. The one time where I felt where where the one occasion that was an ex- there was an exception was the night in 1992 where Norman Lamont came out to the, on the steps of 11 Downing Street and announced the UK was leaving the European rate mechanism, at which mm. point all the positions that we had on the Salomon Brothers were suddenly, we were breaking Lotus 1, 2, 3 spreadsheets because we didn't have the columns wide enough for the P&L. You know, we were 
long the rates market up the wazoo, long the short rates market up. We owned short sterling strip completely. We were um, long the equity market, which opened the, it was just, that's the last time I felt really positive about the UK. When I talk about the UK being a higher beta version of the US, it is likewise economically. So if you look at what can the UK do about this? Well, like all countries, they're suffering a little bit with the choice that certain tech companies are making about putting production, more production in the US because of the Inflation Reduction Act. However, the UK has the ability, it's not withheld now by fiscal constraints from the EU or uh, not being allowed to use tax incentives. They tend tend to, I think the UK has to become much more, and, and you're beginning to see a bit of it, much more transactional. And it has the ability to become much more transactional. And I think that, you know, if you look at that tech triangle, London, Oxford, Cambridge, where some amazing technology, both pure tech and also biotech has come forth, that is a growth area, huge growth area. Now, so the UK has got flexibility in government to meet certain situations. So you're seeing certain companies, international companies, begin to put some, particularly tech, production in the UK, regardless of the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think this is, that, that's where there's <coughs> some upside. And it, it should always, remember, remember the other thing is, UK is officially still growing. Can't mm. say that about the EU or Germany. Okay, so there is flexibility. There's le- they've got their own currency. They have their own monetary policy. Has the Bank of England done a good job? No, it's exactly the same as the US. Year too late. Teams, trans- you know, the transitory inflation. You can say the same with the ECB, and they were even slower than the Bank of England. Um, now, when I look at the impact of interest rates on the economy, obviously, the first place you look at is the housing market. What's different between the UK and the US? The US had a huge build of house, housing build mm. after the pandemic to very recently on the belief that people would work remotely from the cities. There'd been this big flush out from the cities. <clears throat> the UK didn't have an equivalent build because building in the UK has restrictions on green, you know, environmental. Uh, environmental protection areas and the red tape to get them. So they haven't matched the build in the US. So the supply demand is in greater imbalance in the UK by a long way than in the US. So mortgages, if you're a millennial, it's tough, right? It's tough to get a mortgage. It's tough to get on the the property matter. That has to be resolved. And I I suspect at some point you're going to see a lot of planning permission red tape just destroyed. I mean, there's quite a bit of planning permission red tape that's been inherited from being a member of the EU. That's got to go. But they've got to turn it, become more flexible. Um, And I think they will, but it's going to take a while. I mean, you know, the irony of this is, you know, I started my career in the mid-80s. And, you know, I'm hearing people complain about plus 6% interest rate, 7%. Back then, we were up at 14, 15%, right? But we still built, you know, bought in. <clears throat> now, yes, it's the same in the US. Yes, 
real estate price level was lower, and it had the UK has some, particularly London, has suffered hugely from the influx of Russian money, Chinese money, foreign money, hugely. Um, you know, I've seen where my uncle and aunt live. You know, houses typically, when I was living nearby and work, working in, in Baker Street, the greatest hedge fund I think there's ever been. But anyway, um, when I was when I was there and I was looking at houses, typically these houses went for about just under two million pounds. They would have four, four or five bedrooms. They'd be on four floors. They'd be in Georgia. Gorgeous places. You go now and it's five, six million pounds. And we're only talking, that's 10 years later when I was looking at that time. So that is the problem, you know. And the other problem with the UK housing market is people are expecting it to you know, really suffer a downside. You're not going to get that with London. There's always demand for London. Or mm. it's just solid. You may get that in the you know, home counties and further out. So the home counties are the counties that surround London and then further out in the countries. But London, it's there may be some downside, but it's not going to be big. Um, so that, you know, they have to build more real estate. They have to enable the building more of more real estate to quell the demand supply imbalance. And it's, that imbalance is much bigger in the UK than it is in the US. And Nick, what do you think? We're looking at a chart here of the number of mortgages reaching the end of their fixed rate period. The, the other thing that's become more common in the US is a fixed rate mortgage, especially post-2008, whereas in the UK, it tends to be a little bit more variable. Now, with rates climbing up as much as they are in the gilt markets, that obviously causes, uh, poses quite a bit of stress for oh, homeowners. That's going, to, that's going to be problematic. And, and you mm-hmm. know, you're already looking at the Chancellor talking to the banks, looking for solutions to, to ease this stress. Uh, but I didn't see where the solution comes. People, people signed in onto fixed rate turning into variable rate with their eyes wide open. The trouble we've got, so so people would blame this on the banks, but I think the trouble is that back in the, you know, after 08, 09, once we'd recovered from the GFC, people came very became very used to and complacent about zero rate interest rates and positioned themselves accordingly. And I think that's where it's going to come home to roost is this you know, where the fixed rates change to variable rates. And I think that that could be quite problematic. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. You know what I, I also think is funny as well when it comes to the, you know, people are celebrating, oh, you know, the 
uh, there was a lot a period of time during the pandemic where you get a fixed rate mortgage, even if it was you're your first time home buyer for a sub three yeah. percent. You know, it, you don't magically solve it by having that. Someone was on the other side of that trade, right? That's part of the reason why the U.S. banking system is under such stress at the current day. There's no free lunch, right? There's just a yeah. transfer of risk. Now, somehow. is it the U.S. banking? Is it the U.S. banks, or is it actually private equity and pensions <laughs> and insurance? Yeah, I think you might be right. I would put you put, I would say to you, pensions and insurance companies are the ones that are suffering with office commercial real estate slump. They're the exposed mm-hmm. ones. Either through CMBS for office or outright real estate ownership, insurance companies. Who's suffering on the residential side? Hmm, let me think. Oh, black the two blacks. Black rock and black stone. Who've been gating residential real estate for oh Right, they were the ones hoovering up, and um, so I think that now the question is, what do they do? How how hard are they going to stick people to the terms? But they they were hoovering up real, residential real estate after the GFC, hoovering, and then suddenly now we're seeing gated funds, and yeah. then then we hear, oh, they're going to do it again. There, they're going to go and buy some more real estate. Where <laughs> is it supply? Demand and oh, so Nick, you're you're speaking my language here. I, banking issue. I've been talking about that on this podcast all year. Shadow banking and recently kind of stuck my neck out there and talked about private equity because, you know, they've been a money printing machine for such a long period of time. You'd have to imagine that some of the practices and by the way, the it's fake money. Yeah. Yeah. It's fake money Bottom. because when we get onto China and restrictions, they they Look what's happening with Sequoia, what happened with Sequoia, but we'll do that a little bit later in the, in the pod. Okay, I actually I want to transition to talking about China here. There's a really great slide which I think is going to frame this, set up this conversation sort of nicely. So, this is headline consumer price uh, from the UK, the eurozone, US, Japan, China. Now you can see obviously UK is up there in the worst, US is right smack dab in the middle, and China is actually battling deflation right now, yeah. which makes yeah. sense in terms of why the PBOC is trying to inject liquidity at the same time that every other central bank is withdrawing it. So Nick, can you give us uh, just sort of a high level of why does China okay. find itself in a period of deflation when the main problem that every other central bank on the planet is fighting is inflation? It's really simple and it's on the demand side. Mm. Okay. And it's, so a lot of the work that I do and I do with Harold is particularly China, is behavioral economics. Looking for the false premise in the marketplace and working working out that, oh, this is false, this is wrong, this is going to be proven to be wrong. Okay, so back at the beginning of the year, what was the, the uh, conventional wisdom about China? Massive rebound on the back of end of zero COVID and the reopening. Okay, and if you looked at what she was saying and writing, Specifically, she, and we got a couple of excerpts from a, a magazine called Kyushi, or Chiushi if you're pronouncing it in proper Mandarin, which is the official CCP's magazine. When she writes, and there's an article attributed to she in that magazine, it's from him. Okay? All right, so she came out early in the year, early this year, and said, We are, these are the. Whereas exports had been the most important aspect of the Chinese economic growth story, they were demoted to position three. Hmm. 
Really? Oh, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> Position one was again uh, this focus on the domestic consumer, and we're going to come right back to that. Number two was infrastructure. Well, we know infrastructure is a waste of time pushing on the street. Okay. So number one, domestic consumer. Okay, you're talking about a country that's just gone through zero COVID without any social welfare system. There's no health system. You have to pay for your own health care. There's no unemployment benefit. Unlucky, tough, right? So the domestic consumer, and we're not talking the billionaires. We're talking their average consumer, which is got. I mean, remember, there's a large part of it still in poverty in China, but you're looking at the, the brunt of the consumer. Have no revenue and no compensation during zero COVID lockdowns. One. Secondly, what's also happened in China in the last couple of years? The bursting of one of the biggest bubbles in history, the real estate bubble.、Mm. So if you look at your average Joe household balance sheet, there was a lack of flow of income during zero COVID. But that balance sheet also took a forty to sixty percent hit on its biggest asset, the house. So, where on earth are you going to get a massive vengeful, revenge buying spree by the domestic consumer after that? No, 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 no. The Chinese consumer and the Chinese consumers are renowned savers anyway. Needs to rebuild the balance sheet. Period. So, if you look at the last Lunar New Year holiday of a couple of weeks ago, good, acceptable domestic travel. Where the international? Where's the international travel? It's all gone. Okay,、mm. that's the biggest thing, and that pressure on the domestic consumer told us that also the economy would massively disappoint. As would this de-emphasis on exports. As would cause the following, and this is not covered by mainstream media. All you hear about is U.S. decoupling, U.S. decoupling, West decoupling, West decoupling, and now they use de-risk, de-risk, de-risk. China is decoupling. She is decoupling from the West, from the rules-based order, but he's also decoupling from Deng Xiaoping's original economic model, which is exports. Okay. So, if you have that, you will see industrial production somewhat negative, and you know where you can look at the impact of of manufacturing production in China, where you can actually see it manifest in a, in, in something you know you can trust. German manufacturing orders. There's a great positive correlation with that.、Huh. Okay, because German capital goods. Feed the Chinese industrial monster. If the demand for capital goods is going down, that's because the Chinese industrial monster's output is coming down too. Okay, so exports are a problem, and but the, really this decoupling is misunderstood. Australia, with the ban of Australian goods, because the prime minister at the time said we need to look into the origins of COVID and what happened at Wuhan. Okay. Coal exports, the wine, wine industry—they had to look for a whole different export market or increase the the other export markets. So that was already a pattern beginning. But then what you saw was, and this has really happened this year. 
In April 26th, there was a change in the espionage law in China that made due diligence uh, an indictable offense where you face prison. This is why Bain, Mintz, and other companies had their offices visited, employees detained. I think Bain had a Singaporean that was detained. Due diligence can no longer be done. Okay? What? And this is why you're now seeing foreign investment funds pull out. Vanguard now runs global equity from its head office. Ontario teachers, likewise, and they're all beginning to pull out. You had the initial tech crunch, clamp down on the tech. There's a clamp down on finance. So our, our point is, why would you, as a fiduciary, and a fiduciary covers both investment managers but also corpor- corporations, why would you continue to do business if you're going to be further and further restricted? And you've seen Stellantis, the car manufacturer, pulled out of China. Okay. You will see more of that begin to occur. Certainly started with the finance. So where I'm going with this is next stage, and we've been calling this for a while, but she's been doing a lot of the work on behalf of the US anyway, but reverse CFIUS. So CFIUS is restrictions on incoming investments from unnamed countries, but typically it's China, if those investments are into areas of security risk. I think that's probably going to start including buying up of farmland, military bases, and so on and so forth. Reverse CFIUS is a review of all outward investments to unnamed countries, but you're looking at China. Obviously, you can include North Korea or Iran in certain as actual fields. Of, so you're looking at uh, supercomputers, AI, semiconductors, and so on. So, not allowing investments into Chinese companies that produce that, okay? That, the reason why the Biden administration is going to do this is Congress, the only thing Congress, both sides can agree on, whether it's the House or the Senate, is China. And as we move to the election, that that will just intensify and they will outcompete each other. But remember, the House has a select committee specifically on China. Run the, the chief house, uh, it's Mike Gallagher who's, who's in charge of that. Gallagher has a PhD, he's an ex-Marine. I mean, this is a highly qualified person. In the Senate, you had Mark Warner talking about, he started to get worried about China as a security risk back in 2012, the minute she was appointed the successor. So, all this ends up, but she's doing a lot of the work The work himself. There is a significant decoupling. So in 2001, China became a member of the WTO. The country that suffered the most on its exports to the US was Mexico. Okay. For the first time in 20 years, Mexican exports to the US match China's exports to the US. That is astonishing, right? That it, and now that's a combination of China's exports falling and Mexico's exports, you know, rising at a faster pace. Why is that happening? Friendshoring. 
manufacturing is moving to Mexico to satisfy the U.S. market. Okay, so it's extraordinary what's going on. But people should not have any doubt China is actively decoupling. It's not just the West. Yeah, it's a it's an extremely good point, Nick. And, you know, we're, we're drawing cl- close to the, the end of our interview here. Unfortunately, I'm sure we could go on for hours about this. But, you know, the last the last question that I want to ask you before I give you a chance to plug some of the work that you and Harold do together is, you know, when, yeah. when people talk about China injecting liquidity and that impacting U.S. stocks, I mean, you sort of mentioned this before, but I'd love to just sort of draw a bookend to this. Like, how should people take from the perspective of asset prices, China injecting liquidity, and how much does that have an impact on Western assets? Yes, they've got a deflationary problem. That's why you'd inject liquidity. Yes, the economy is not performing. That's why you inject liquidity. But you do that. They they are currency conscious. And if they further do that, we're going to fly through 730 on the way to, you know, potentially I've heard some, some people talk about eight. Well, if that's the case, then um, that will bring back some inflation. It's actually what they should probably do. But the one thing that people have missed the point about Chinese stimulus, in whatever shape it comes, the Chinese came out with a conservative 5.5% growth target, and they believe they're doing it. And because you have a very, you have a, she has basically Stalinized all government. So he's right at the top. With that power, people don't want to give him any bad news. <laughs> so they will never take, it doesn't seem that they're capable of taking proactive steps ahead of these problems and that they're chasing and that chasing is just, as I said, you know, the real estate market, there was some su- supportive measures announced overnight. Mm. Uh, we're on Monday. But look at that, supportive not stimulus, it's support. That, that, you know, I always say in that situation like that, dead cats can bounce. But, um, you know, real estate prices, they're falling again. So they want to stop the fall. So it's getting worse and worse. And I also think the most important thing to understand about China is it's run by Xi. He is at top, right at the top of the pile. People would define it as national security. I would, I would sort of suggest, in his case, it's political ideology will trump economic pragmatism, period. We've seen that with what happened to the tech companies in the clampdown. There's a clampdown on the finance sector, and it just carries on. So, yeah. you know, if there's a bit of stim- – I mean, people are gagging for stimulus. The amount of stimulus that will really make a difference – we're not going to see that un- under any circumstances. Nick, this has been a tremendously fun interview. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You're definitely going to give me My and pleasure. the listeners stuff to chew on for a while. I want to give you a, a chance to plug a little bit about what you you do. You put out some phenomenal research, which I was lucky enough to read before this interview. So you know, where can people find out more about you or the work that you do or, or subscribe if they'd like to? Okay, so we have, uh, and this is quite technologically aware of us, we have a Shopify store. Wow. So if you go onto Shopify and look for Malmgren Glinsman Partners, you should be able to find us. Now, if not, you can always um, find me on Twitter at nglinsman. Uh, Harold is at Hal's Rethink. 
Okay, so it's rethinking the world, which is marvelous. And what we do is we have um, we have a product that's got broad coverage and broad client base, uh, which we call ahead of the herd, which is a daily, and that's me writing about what's come out, market observations each day, and then one or two art, maybe one to three articles that are related to the themes that we're looking at more broadly. And then, and we're just going through a reorganization. We have a, a very high-end institutional. That, 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 you know, the daily is certainly attainable by uh, retail investors. And, you know, personally, I would urge them because we really fill out the information. And I think the more that you know of what's actually happening, we don't speculate. We, we look at the facts. The more you know of what's actually happening, the more you can create a portfolio mix that first and foremost preserves capital, secondly gives you a good chance of making money more than 50% of the time. Then we have this high-end product, which is really for the big institutions. And in the middle, we're about to come out with uh, a weekly letter, and it's going to be split into one, one week it will be geopolitics fused with implications, macroeconomic implications. The next week will be macro markets okay and then we'll be connected and we're going to take the geopolitics in charge separately and the macro markets charge separately and it will all be found on the shopify store um and that's a combination of for small family offices uh you know uh, registered investment advisor groups etc uh who want to go to the next stage and look at okay not the immediate market, but what's coming down the road six months, six to 12 months time that will impact where I put my money now and what will the impact be? So we're looking ahead of the game. So it's a fusion, basically, it's, I hope this is not too complicated, it's a fusion of geopolitics and the impact thereof of macroeconomics onto the markets. And it can go the other way too. Markets, macroeconomics, geopolitics. So we're trying to fuse it because a lot of our view is a large amount of researchers don't fuse the three. You're either one or the other. Yeah. Well, I think uh, hopefully listeners got a bit of a taste of that in this discussion. And I would highly recommend that you guys go check it out. We can link the Shopify, which congrats on, on setting that up. That's very 21st century of you. And, and I know, doing that. I uh, so we'll, we'll link that in the show notes and your Twitters as well. And Nick, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. And I'll have to do it Thank again soon. Thank you. Lots of fun. And yes, let's do it. Do it again soon. Yes. All right. Okay. 